Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear is the fifth and final in a series of lessons presented to the Franklin Congregation in January of 2009 by Harold Comer. Brother Comer agreed to work with us as we strive to make 2009 our biggest year of growth ever. In this lesson, he provided some scriptural information about pinch points and barriers and ceilings to congregational growth and what we need to do to prepare for those so that we can overcome them. So please, open your Bible and get ready to talk about barriers, ceilings, and pinch points for congregational growth. Let me welcome the visitors also. We appreciate so much your presence. And I think that some of the things we talk about will say that we truly appreciate you and we want to do the very best we can in letting you know our interest and concern. This is a Bible class, and you feel free to raise any question that you'd like to raise. We'll do part of it from here, and then I'll move down front for some of it. But you feel free to catch my attention on any of the points that we're addressing the questions you raise will be beneficial to everyone this year. I want to thank you for letting me be a part of your work and share with you in God's cause and God's work. There is a great compliment that you give to a preacher, and it's a great gift also. When you give your heart, give your conscience, and give your mind and your time for him to teach, Preacher is not much if you don't have someone that listens. And so the opportunity of being here is such a blessing, and that I appreciate your eager response and the attitudes that each of you have had. I appreciate so much your potential and where you can go. The lesson this evening is centered around that. It's entitled Facing Future. The word facing says that there are some serious responsibilities out there and that we've got to turn our attention to the future. And I hope that one of the things that will come from this lesson as well as the others is the future conversions that are going to be there, but the attitude of looking at the future rather than looking at the past. Sometimes we're looking too far backwards, or even just looking at what's here only right now. The passage in Philippians, the third chapter, in verses 12 through 15, talks about forgetting the things that are behind and pressing on to the things that are ahead. One of the things that's often missed in the passage is the start of verse 15, where Paul says, and let this mind be in you. Or you have this same kind of attitude. And the attitude he's talking about is looking ahead and focusing on the future. It is so important for a congregation to do that, to be excited about what they're doing, and to find the kinds of moods that God wants in a New Testament church. You need to look at the basic premises that God wants for you, the basic attitudes and values, you need to recognize the basic needs that are there. I want to make a quick list of those, of the major needs that this congregation would face 
as far as the future is concerned. We're going to talk about some of the the other uh, important areas, but first the needs. The truth is so important for us to be a New Testament church. We can be a religious people. We can be a sweet people. We can be very faithful and regular. But if we don't have the truth, then it all goes for naught. In fact, it's very, very deceptive. One of the major needs of this congregation and every congregation in the future is the people that live it. Their life and morals becomes their power. Your power is in the way you live. Now, the way you live is not going to mean that a lot of people are going to come rushing in here until you learn to build a bridge to them by saying, come. And when you learn to touch the people around you, you're going to find the few people in those circles that are interested in the spiritual things that are there. One of the major needs is to have a hunger, have a desire, a driving desire to save your own soul and to save the soul of your fam- souls of your family and then to save the souls of anyone else that you can. God tells us to pray for wisdom, and this is particularly important in evangelism. That one of the needs for the church is not just to do church, or not just to do what we did before, but to find out what's wise and what's best and what we ought to be doing in our situation right now. The lesson tonight will also introduce the concept of difficult periods. A pinch point would be if a tube was there and you pinched it and crimped it to where only a little bit of fluid could go through, it slows everything down. And it can be a great line, but everything is controlled by the pinch point. And there are some issues that are that way as far as churches are concerned. There are some pinch points that we don't recognize, and they will not stop growth completely, but they will affect it a lot, and they will slow it down. There are some other things that are more serious, though, than just a pinch point, and that is there are barriers or ceilings that are there. And there are a great number of them. They're, they're very different, and the only way we'll know they're there is by being wide awake, by observing things around us, by asking questions, and most of all, by praying to God for wisdom. You pray for wisdom, then you seek wisdom, you look for her as she's all around you. But there are those ceilings, and churches have to hit them about three times before they'll ever admit they're there. And when I tell someone, look, this is where it's going to stop, uh, they'll just, they've been growing and they're getting closer and closer to that, and they just don't believe it's there. They think that they've had this success for this long, it'll go that long again. And they have to hit the ceiling and it bounces down, then they hit it again and it bounces down. It has to be hit about three times before they finally start to admit that there really is something that's there. It's invisible to them. But 
that if you've looked at a number of churches, you know some of those seedings. Some of them are, uh, are numbers. Uh, 7580 is a really hard one to break. There are those that are there ahead for you. 200 is a difficult one that's out there. Uh, some of them are not numbers. Some of them are attitudes. Some of them are things that are going on. Some of them have to do with facilities or procedures or leadership or structure of uh, what is done. The scriptural pattern is what guides us, of course, and there are some important lessons that we need to learn from the, the patterns that are there. One of the ones that's often missed is how much of Christ's precious time in his ministry was given to a few leaders. The last year of Christ's life, about a third of all that he was doing, is almost entirely given to 12 people. He moves them away from the crowds that were there in the great Galilean ministry. He moves them to Perea and up toward Tyre and Sidon in different places and keeps teaching them and training them. One of the great things that Christ did, and with the help of the Holy Spirit and Revelation in uh, Acts, the second chapter of verse, the second chapters and following, is those twelve leaders founded the church, started it, energized it, brought wisdom into it. For twelve country-type Galileans, most of them were at any rate, to have done what they did in the world is just an unbelievable exploit. And it is a statement to us about how important we need to be working at each and every level of the leadership in a congregation. You think about Jesus' time, Jesus' effort, His patience with them, because they often aggravated him. And he knew that they needed to grow. And all of that was priceless when the church began. And it was the source of much of the great growth in the New Testament church. There were going to be issues that came up when the early church started to grow. And we've got to recognize that. I'm not telling you that if you grow, everything's going to be peaceful and there are not going to be any problems. The Bible doesn't indicate that. The Bible indicates that if you're doing what you ought to be doing, that you better be praying for God to protect you from Satan and from evil men because there will be opposition. And what we see in Acts, the sixth chapter, in facing the growth issues that were there, we see first that growth causes problems. Now, in these days, Acts 6.1, when the disciples were increasing in number, they've got a problem. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. Here we've got a buzz going on in the congregation and the difficulty that was there. And the twelve have to meet this, and they have to meet it by changing the way things are done, changing the structure 
in the leadership patterns in the congregation. They've got to bring in some men just to take care of these Grecian widows that are being neglected. Now, there would have been just scores of other problems like this. And you say, well, why is this the one that's in the Bible? It's because Luke, a Gentile, is writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, and he is explaining how this little circle, this little band of very strict, exclusive Jews exploded into a worldwide church. And there were issues, key issues, that were met early that set precedents. One of the early issues is that they were treating the Jewish widows one way, the Greek widows another. And yet when they realized it and faced it, they took care of it by handling the structure in a scriptural kind of way, and men were appointed to look after that. The result, and the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now, here's an issue. They settled the issue. The, re- the result is they're back to growth, and it, it is a great growth, and a great many even of the priests became obedient to the faith. One of the scriptural patterns that's so important is the issue of finding wisdom, that we are to commanded to walk in wisdom toward those that are without, in Colossians, the fourth chapter in verse 5. You need to mark that and put a big star by it, because that's so important today. It's not a suggestion. It is a commandment. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. And let's not plan to do that out in the future. This says that we're on a time frame that's quickly ticking, and we're to redeem the time. Buy up the opportunity. We're to use the time in our evangelism and reaching out to others. One of the elements of growth that's so important and too often is neglected is to pray and to pray and to pray about the, the needs, about the the things that get in the way, pray for the protection that's there. Colossians 1, verse 9 through 11, has an interesting picture. Paul starts out with prayer. Now, if you go back to Colossians 4, uh, you'll see in verses 2 through 6 that there are about three references to prayer in this picture of evangelism in Colossians 4. This is back earlier, Colossians 1. He says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. The the continual, repetitious prayer about brethren and about their evangelism is very, very important. And so we get a theme that runs through Paul's teaching when he draws pictures about evangelism. There is the subject of the need again, the need for wisdom. Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul recognizes that he prays for others. And he's telling Colossae that I've been praying for you 
regularly and repeatedly. That's how important Paul thinks prayer is. How much more important is it for the brethren at Colossae to be saying their own prayer about finding the wisdom, finding the knowledge and the spiritual understanding that is needed in their work. We also see at the conclusion of this passage the point that I made last night, that when we do it, we better do it the best way that we can. That we need to do it worthy of the Lord. So, there to do his, know His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Then verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. But to do it worthy of the Lord says that we are to put great effort into it and do a, a good job with it. Well, those are patterns and principles. There are also these pictures of barriers and ceilings and pinch points of things that get in the way, that stop the growth, and just really surprise people. Uh, and again, you just cause some bald-headed fly by night comes flying through, and he says, this will happen. I say, you know, check that out. But when it checks out, you need to know the seriousness of anything that stops God's work. In the New Testament times, there were issues that were that way. For example... The Jewish Christians demanded that the Gentiles should be circumcised and obey Jewish food restrictions. And even someone like Peter, who had seen the sheep come down from heaven, uh, and understand in Acts 10 that the Gentiles were accepted, still is caught in this trap of not eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. I want you to think for a moment about what the result would be if someone were able in New Testament times to stop uh, Gentile Christians from eating like Gentiles, to demand that they eat like Jews and that they be circumcised. What would have been the effect on the New Testament church? Okay, you would never have converted any Gentiles. There may have been 6 million Jews, certainly no more than 12 million Jews. That would have been pretty well the limit of it with a few proselyte-type people. It would have never have been what it became. Uh, it was doing well within the Jewish community, but they soon have to expand out. And one of the issues that Paul fought, even to the point of challenging Peter to his face, is when somebody tried to put that ceiling in there. Would that have been a ceiling to stop growth? Would it have been a barrier? It surely would. And Paul understood that, and when it came to a point of applying that, he challenged it directly, he challenged it forcefully, he dealt with it in a clear way 
because of the souls that are involved. Now, I've covered a number of important introductory areas. I'm going to stop and take any questions you have. Uh, there's still a number of other things to look at. But uh, there really, before we pass some of these points, we want to give anyone an opportunity to explore it. problem with the question period is the first question. First question. I know you got curiosity somewhere. Yeah, I'm going to list uh, some of the barriers. Uh, I won't, won't list all of them because a lot of them you've already passed. But there are surely enough that you need to know their head. And if I'm going to be honest to you about facing the future, I'm going to have to paint just brief, quick pictures out there of what happens when you go from 140, 160 to 250. You're going to have to break some of those barriers to reach that level. And then to go from 250 to 350, there are going to be other barriers that, that are different. And I'm not going to paint those thoroughly because they're farther out there, but I am going to suggest the general features that are there. Other questions? That, that issue of pre-qualifying who is a prospect is a natural kind of issue. I worked for years and years and years to try to get shortcuts to the prospect. Now then, you might pray to find a prospect, but you need to be willing to pay the price to get there. And the price is that other 99 to get to the one. And if you pray the prayer, Lord, send me a prospect, and don't let me get bothered about all those guys that are not, not prospects. Uh, I think you're getting lazy, and you're shortcutting uh, the price that God is asking you to pay for a soul. Uh, but I, I worked for years trying to find keys to prospects. And th there the best key I know is when he comes to service. Uh, I've converted some people. In fact, most of the people I converted through the 60s, the first time they came in the church building was when they came to be baptized. And we'd already had 10 hours, uh, 20 hours of study, and about 10, 15 hours of just talking before that, that came about. But uh, there, there are are not any quick guidelines that I can tell you that this will find the real prospect. It has to come in this day and time with urban people by inviting as many as you can. And it doesn't have to be the service. It can be to a small group or it can be to all sorts of different things. But you do have to invite them to something that qualifies it shows their interest. 
And again, most of them won't go through. But the one that keeps coming back uh, is, even though he's not asking any questions, not he's hiding his interest. There, the, the way you know is through his return and his persistence. Let me describe some of the common pinch points. You keep your question, and I'll, I'll come back with an opportunity. A pinch point, it doesn't mean it stops entirely. It just means it slows it down. If you don't work on your desire to save a soul, let me assure you that when you get to the day of judgment, you're going to wonder why in the world you were interested in TV programs, in sports, in work, in material things that were soon going to be burned up, and why you did not focus more on the saving of the souls around you. Desire and commitment are very, very important. And if you lessen your desire, if you let Satan distract you, and your desire narrows down, then the effect of what you're going to do is greatly limited by that. A second pinch point is how much training goes on and how much is being done to develop people's skills. If Jesus spent over a third or about a third of his time just in just had three and a half years, he touched the whole world. In that time. Well, well, what what had gone on from the time he was 20 to he was 30? He's working in a carpenter shop. He's taking care of his widowed mother. He's taking care of the younger kids that come along. He's learning self-control. He's learning attitude. It, it seems such a waste that if he could have started at 20, what could he have done? But there was wisdom in the plan, and the fact that he could do that in three and a half years says that with the, the right application, there are great things that can be done by everyone here, even if your lifespan is very limited from this point. Uh, the, the other thing about that is how much of that time he understood should be given to developing others. And so, the mentoring program, the developing your, your uh, possible teachers, the development of your new converts are all critical issues of growth. There is a major pinch point at our reluctance not to plan and to look to the future. One of the reasons for emphasizing the importance of facing the future is that's almost necessary to learn how to lay out plans, specific plans, not wishes. Uh, Everybody has some wishes for the future, but a wish doesn't do much. It is a plan. When you write a goal, you write a goal, I will do this. If you don't think you'll do it, don't lie. Think about it more and make a decision and write, I will do that. Keep it honest. It, it, you're not doing it now, or it wouldn't be a goal. But it is a, a positive expression that builds your desire and pushes you. But then, once you say it, 
And once you repeat it, that 50 to 100 times and visualize it, now then, you've got to get to it. And planning is an important part of that. It is natural to look ahead and to think about what needs to be done to lay it out, to plan and prepare. And so, it is important in a church to do that. But Satan gives us some excuses. Oh, you don't know what the Lord wants for you. You don't know what the Lord has prepared. You don't know the future. And give you a whole list of reasons that say don't plan, don't prepare. You need to understand as an individual the importance of a goal ahead, a plan headed that way, and the early steps of preparation that go in that direction. But a church needs to do the same. That they need to uh, know where they're going, what they want to do this year, what they want to do next year, what has to be laid out, what has to be planned, and the preparation that goes. You get sealed in that as you go on and on. We think about it, but often we don't get to it. One of the pinch points is the facilities, they're there. there. There's a time that when you're pushing your facilities is full or full and you're pushing people out the door that uh, you stop your growth. That's an absolute ceiling. And I've been in a great number of churches that were doing well, but they had bumped the ceiling. I've told one church, you know, you're going to stop right here. And they had to hit it three times before They said, well, maybe he's right, you know. And then they did something about it, and they went well beyond it. I've told one church it was there, and they had to hit it five times before they corrected one part of that. So uh, the facilities are important, and that's why the issue of empty pews is there. There, That's a part of facilities, and it is a part of message. Uh, It's a part of what the minister thinks the first time that he comes in. It's a part of our feeling. If I am disassociated, uh, I can't sing much. I I like to sit in front of a good singer because I'm terrible. I like to sit on the front row so nobody can hear me. But uh, God wants me, commands me to sing. And if you get too far apart from everyone, you're not singing as well or as as heartily. So there are a lot of reasons just about perception that all those issues come up. On seats, you can have too few or you can have too many. And you've got to appreciate the importance of that. That's not a church rule. That's an architectural rule. And it applies to all kinds of assemblies and groups. You can have too few. You can have too many. If you're going to face the future, you need to understand about removing extra pews. The reason that's so hard, and the reason there are churches that just can't sort of do that, is because they feel that that's looking backwards, that that's a statement of failure. That doesn't have anything to do about the past. That has something to do with what's there right now, has something to do with next week when a visitor comes in here 
and it has something to do with your future. It's important to the future, and if you want to grow, you've got to, to keep a point of wisdom about the situation that, that's around you. If somebody said we could save the Lord's money if we get rid of all these lights, and we could just buy a few candles, and we could just set them around, then there wouldn't be any sense in that. If somebody said we, uh, years ago, uh, when church buildings were white, and somebody said, you know, down at the railroad, the uh, uh, salvage, they've got a bunch of five-gallon cans of black paint. And we can get that really cheap. Let's just paint the church building black. Well, everybody would have scoffed at that, and they wouldn't be talking about wisdom. They'd be talking about common sense. That there never was a church building that was black. And you'd call that common sense. Uh, today, when you've got to deal with some issues that are a little bit like that, we get where we, we don't really, really know. But balancing the pews and the people is a way of looking at the future. It is a commitment to the future. It doesn't have anything to do with the past at all. It's about our future desires and our future goals and where we're going. Some of the ceilings and the barriers that are ahead, if you don't plan, that's a barrier. There are some things that can't be done if you don't plan ahead. And there are a lot of times that churches are stopped simply because they didn't plan ahead. Uh, we own the, the building right next to us that we need if we're going to make it even a lobby. We don't even have a lobby. In our, our building, you you come through a door and you're in a hall, a sort of a low hall. And it isn't the greatest way. You walk, and Then you come into a bigger cave and uh, you go two different ways. But you don't know, there are five ways to go. You don't know which way to go. It's just, you come in and you look around and, and our visitor just totally, you know, surprised. We're going to have to go make an open front door in the, the auditorium. We're going to have to make a lobby just to even be a, a little normal. But it means that we need that house next door. Well, we own that house next door at one time and got rid of it. There wasn't any belief that we could grow it up. We got condos on the other side of us. They could have bought that ground for $100,000 and, and uh, be on the main road. But there was no sense of looking ahead or planning, and therefore it, uh, it just it becomes a, a barrier or an expensive barrier. If you don't make much noise, it, it, that's a barrier. If you look at the churches that you hear about and the churches that are growing, they're going to be the same church. And you just check that out. I've done this test a lot of times. Tell me about the church you hear about the most in this town. That somebody from that church even invited you. And that will be the church that's growing. It's a consistent kind of rule. If you don't make noise, you're not going to do much. If you'll get out and everybody will be talking, each of you will enthuse the other one. And each one of you learn how to do it from the other one. The more noise you make, 
the more people come in and look at you. One of the ceilings and barriers is when you quit praying. And quit praying with great, bold prayers. We're to be bold in our praying, Hebrews says. And if you don't pray, then you are just saying to God, look, God, we think we can do it, or we don't need you, or we don't think you care, all sorts of negative messages there. Praying is a vital part of evangelism. Go back to Colossians 4 and just underline the the areas of that that have to do with praying. If you get your desires misdirected, if you're all concerned about other things, maybe you want to build your house, or maybe you've got something else. But even if you're in school, you need to know what the priority is and what comes first, and you need to keep your desires focused on Him and on the eternity. The problem of learning is there also. If all we're going to know is what we know right now, then we're not going to be any different. If all I know is just what I know right now, then things are not going to be any different. I've got to be learning. You've got to be learning. We've got to be growing in knowledge. Wasn't that Paul's prayer? That they would grow in knowledge and in wisdom and spiritual understanding. And if he's praying about that for Colossae, surely Colossae ought to be praying about it, and surely they ought to be listening to wisdom, opening up their ears. One of the barriers ahead of you is a 200 barrier. And uh, I'll briefly look at this and, and then take questions. The 200 barrier is uh, can be stretched. The church where I am stretched it to 325 for about six months. It was too much of a stretch. They came back to 280. But the truth is, all the time, they were just at the 200 barrier. The 200 barrier is where there's one preacher, where there are... There's not uh, any other ex- extra workers or volunteers. There, there are plenty of volunteers, but they're still at the level of where they were at 150 or 175. And that one preacher is overworked. If he'll neglect his family, you can push it on to 250. And there are those that have. But if they always go back. And what you have at that point is you have people that are not connected. You're not doing enough stuff to bond everybody together and and keep them tied together. Uh, The balance between personnel and workers and problems is not there. That's what you had in Act 6. You had a problem that you didn't have workers for. You had to increase the workers to, to, to meet the problem and stop the murmuring and... Get back to the growth. So the 200 barrier is a barrier that says that you're going to be limited by the way you put your workforce together. Volunteers can step up a little bit. They cannot really equal or replace a full-time worker. The balance that we see in Scripture, it always is some people who are supported 
and some people who are volunteers. Is that a constant problem picture that you see all through Scripture? You've got some paid workers and some volunteers. And the, the balance between it and how that it's there is, is a very important balance. There are some uh, natural ratios dependent upon the volunteer time. But it just means that if you're going to grow to 250 and there are 300, that you're going to have to have greater production. That is work that goes on. And th- there are ways of handling that. You get a little help from a secretary. Our secretary helps bond the whole congregation together. There, she does things like, I got an email on my BlackBerry today about three surgeries yesterday. Uh, I've, she, uh, conveys information. Uh, she handles a lot of communication. Uh, I don't have to answer the phone all morning, every morning. Uh, she gets sick one day and she always comes in at 9.30 and the phone starts ringing at about 9.35. And when she's not there and I'm answering the phone and interrupted all morning and she comes in the next day, I say, yesterday was a appreciate Nikki day because I really appreciate her because of what she allows me to do and how she makes much more effective use of my time, my money, and it's uh, one of the cheapest things that, that you can do. Volunteers, Carol, Carolyn Ring was one of a big help when I was down at Columbia. Uh, there, there, there are volunteers and others that, that can help. You can't tell a, a volunteer, though, what to do, when to do something. It, there's a reason to employ somebody. But th- there, the point is, there is a barrier of work, uh, where the workforce is not there. Questions? Yeah, it's a very uh, absolute ratio that you need. uh, uh, Your best growth occurs when you're 50% full to 66% full. You want to be in that that sweet spot. And if you you get up to where you're 50% full, then as you you watch it closely, when you get to 66% full, then you put in another pew. if you get down, you say, well, what about 40? The rule at 40 is you're not going to grow. But if you do the math on that, you become farther apart from everybody. Doesn't sound like very much mathematically. But distance-wise, you're getting scattered more. It's affecting your singing. It's affecting how you interact and relate to the people around you. If if I don't want, if I don't agree with someone, and I, but I want to check them out, where do I want to sit? And do I want to sit close to somebody, or do I want to sit off by myself and watch? Yeah, I, uh, but now then, suppose I don't want to do that, but I come in and there's a big hole there, and I plop down in the middle of it. Does it make me feel closer? Or more uh, isolated. Yeah. 
You see, there's a lot going on in in our attitudes that that we realize. Where you sit is is marked by a couple of different patterns. One, how direct you are, and the other, how committed you are. And there have been all sorts of sociological studies on this, and uh, the, the rule is the more direct you are, the more you come straight into the auditorium and sit down. Normally, the people that ask the questions are going to be right here. Who's asked questions today? All right. The, the people that are quiet and committed come deep into the auditorium and come down to the front. The people that are still unsure, they grab a seat quicker because they're still building their commitment. And they're they're aware of that. That's why there's a lot more going on, and there are good reasons for the rules. Other questions? On the aisle again. Uh, once you get to one person every 24 inches, it's filled. If you're talking about one person every three feet, uh, then you're probably, that's when your your better growth starts. Uh, The rules are 18 inches. Uh, That's not a good rule anymore, uh, but that's the old architect's rule. And uh, if you're near my 18 inches, you better be ready for 14 something. But uh, but it's still the way the rule is written. And it's still valid. Questions? I've, I've shut down everybody on the aisle. <laughs> Raising questions. One more. I will close out uh, pretty quickly. Uh, let me... Uh, the, the one worker barrier... That means that there are some real issues about how you put workers together. There are a lot of things to learn about structure, uh, how you put the work uh, separately. You don't just go hard to full pit preachers. You're in trouble. And you don't say, you guys take care of it. You're in real trouble then. But you've got to put together a team, and everybody on board has to be a part. You say, well, the elders hire. Yeah, the elders hire, but they better hire somebody that can work together. And so they need to, to work with whoever's there about how the, the, the team is put together. Did Paul work with the team? Did Jesus normally work with the team? Yeah. There, there are all sorts of examples all through Scripture of of the, the, the team concept and of working together. There are changes in structure and changes in functional a- activities that have to be there at, at different times. Let me quickly suggest that at, at every level of activity, whether it's leadership, workforce, even supported volunteer, whether it's what the church knows or what the churches expect, what if how it's bonded together, or how the relationships spread through the group, or just the faith it has to grow. You've got to grow in some kinds of ways in each of those. 
quickly, let me list levels of churches just to, to indicate something about what has to change to move from one level to another. The first level of churches is the patriarch matriarch church. It's a one leader church. They'll almost always be 40 to 50 in number for many years. And they will be one family dominant. If you want to be a part of that church, you better get along. You can be a fellow traveler in there, which means you're quiet and you go along with the one dominant leader. If you're going to come in with any kind of force, there's going to be a conflict. And uh, for this church to, to grow, they've got to accept outside leadership. And, and sometimes when the old leadership dies off, sometimes when they learn, uh, you can have a patriarch matriarch that grows much more. They'll almost always come back, though, uh, to, to close to this, this range. The next group above that is the one group church. This is the church that is anywhere from 60 to 80. It is a, a church that cannot break the 75-80 barrier. They, they do, they stretch it, maybe to 115, but they always go back. And it, this will have two or three primary leaders. Uh, everyone is interested in how close they are. Everyone has all these reasons. They ought not to grow too large. Uh, you lose your closeness. Everybody can't participate at the same time. Uh, the two or three uh, leaders um, sort of the, keep the, the seven or eight uh, pre-deacon types uh, in check. And that's one of the reasons that they stay at, at that level. Very hard, hard uh, level to break. The next church above that is the preacher-centered church. It'll be 100 to 150. Uh, if the, they've got a good preacher, they think they do well. If they've got a poor preacher, they think they don't do well. The preacher brings quite a bit of the vision and the work. And they're unsure of their ability to hire a preacher uh, at this level. They still they got two or three leaders. Now they've got seven or eight uh, deacon types. And... Uh, they're, they're good things that they've learned that, that they got out of the 75-80 barrier, but there's still a limit to what can be done at, at, uh, in, in all of that. The level above that is a process or a program-centered congregation. They've learned enough how to do things, to do them well. There's they're the two or three leader or elder types or maybe a few more. They're, the deacons are doing more and taking part. Uh, they're not as dependent on the preacher. They think that if we lose this preacher, we can hire another one that's uh, equal to where he is at this point. You call them a program-centered church because the key factor that's there is they've, they've learned wisdom enough how to get things done, how to get them organized, that they go on irrespective of an elder dying or a preacher uh, moving or something like that. But if that's a program-centered church. You would be in that process of moving from one to the other. I, you, the, the number of your elders suggest you're farther up the curve on that. The relationship between your elders and your deacons say you're up the curve 
on that. There are uh, some things that say that they're still keeping you in that 150 range. But that's the, the level above you. To break that, to break the 200 barrier, and to go on to 300, 350, 400 something, you've got to understand that now you've got more teenagers, you've got more old folks, you've got more young families, and one person can't comprehend everything that's going on. And so you've got to have somebody that works with the teenagers and somebody that works with the, the worship plan, that somebody works uh, in the, the, the areas of the, the finance and the benevolence. It, it, you have to specialize more. I see that in the congregation where I am. I don't even know where all the thermostats are. In all the churches where I started work, uh, I was the guy that had to turn them on and off and uh, manage them and call the, the the heater heating man if they weren't working or whatever. I don't even know. I can't I can't even tell you which thermostat. There's seven or eight of them, and there's a bunch of air conditioning units around. That then applies equally about the teaching. I don't don't have anything to do with the teachers that go into our spiritual heritage. Uh, there are all sorts of things that go on that the deacons have charge from. The elders are overworked at this point, and they have to turn more management activities for the deacon to have a budget, to have a plan, and to, to, to look at his area in a thorough way. Then the elders have to spend time shepherding and spend time overseeing the total picture. It, it, it changes the relationship in some ways. Well, that, all that does is just suggest that you've got to change structure, you've got to change function, uh, you've got to change leadership and some other things that are there. All of those things have to change at every level. There are a number of things that are work for me, but I've gone to far enough. And... Uh, I'll uh, not steal time from you because I have uh, gone long on the really important lessons. The important lesson Monday night about how to speak, how to invite, how to touch others. If you've got CDs and you listen to that and write them down, and I won't ask you if you've written them down, but if you haven't written down your invitations, please do so. It is a vital function of your brain in helping you to feel at ease to drop some things in. And the more you do that, the more you write it down, the more it'll go. I hope you were edified by this lesson. Most of all, I hope God was glorified. At the Franklin Church, we take God's directive to spread His gospel seriously, and we don't want to miss one single opportunity to get His word out. We hope you share this goal. If you have any questions about this lesson, any spiritual needs, or any prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. We would love for you to attend one of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. 
More importantly, may you richly bless God.